Hi, my name is Lindsay. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel, the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nicole. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 2, 9 through 15. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespass and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us of all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Mark 1, 21 and 22. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would take the Word of God and make, them alive in our, make it alive in our hearts again today. Breathe these words into us, that you would wake us up, that you would cause hope to rise, that you would challenge us, that you would change us. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are able to believe. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and you see it up on the stage. We've got the purple linens up. We've got the Advent wreath. Uh, and the candle, maybe those of you that were here uh, right at the beginning of the service, you, you saw the candles being lit, you heard the words uh, being said. There's a piece of art here done. Is Anna Hayes in the room this morning? Anna, I don't know if you're here this morning, but hey, Anna, there you are. Anna did an incredible job doing these paintings. Give her a hand, everybody. Just beautiful pieces of art. And she's made one for each of the weeks of Advent. Now, Advent, this might be new for some of you, I, I understand, uh, Advent is, is not just another name for uh, the Christmas season 
or for the holidays, which themselves come from uh, the sense that these are holy days. Uh, Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas. In fact, it's a separate season altogether. It's the way that we begin to prepare our hearts and journey toward Christmas. In fact, Advent is actually the beginning of the church year. So, Happy New Year, everybody. I know everybody else thinks that doesn't come till later, but we're ahead of the curve here. And it's the new year because this is how Christians begin to mark time. Now, there's many ways to mark time, and most of us keep time by thinking about what's coming in the weekend and our next vacation or when family arrives or when our next trip is or whatever. We keep time in all sorts of ways. But the church calendar for centuries is an invitation to say, how, how about, in addition to all those other things that are on your mind, how about you mark time in a way that helps you fix your eyes on Jesus? Because the whole church calendar actually follows the life of Christ, and it's a way to sort of keep company with Jesus. I love that phrase that Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase uses in Matthew 11. Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Come, come to me. Learn from me. Keep company with me. And I'll teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. So all of this, you're about to see this for the next several months, all the way up through Easter and Pentecost. This is the, the seasons of the year that we call the church calendar. And it's really all about trying to keep company with Jesus, marking time in a way that draws our heart and our attention to Jesus. And Advent is the beginning of it. It's the start of it. It comes from this Latin word, Adventus, which means the arrival. And, uh, and, and so as Christians, what we're thinking about is not only the first arrival 2,000 years ago, the baby in the manger and all that, but we're also thinking about the next time Christ comes in glory. The creed says he will come again in glory. And so we find ourselves as Christians, every time we enter Advent, there's a bit of a remembering, but then there's also a lot of hoping and longing and anticipating. And sometimes that longing and that anticipating is full of joyful expectation. It's like, yes, come on, Lord. And other times it's a mournful longing. It's a dear Lord, please come. Oh, and you feel it when we sing a song like, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, ransom, captive Israel. And you think, yes, we're, there, there are chains that are still around our world. Come, Lord. And so I think Advent can be a chance, actually, to have a richer expression than just saying it's the most wonderful time of the year. Because <laughs> it is the most wonderful time of the year, except when it isn't. Except when you're thinking about the loss of loved ones or the separation or strained relationships. When you're thinking about all of that, how do we find language for this? And so Advent is a way of saying, I can enter into all of that because actually we are remembering that God himself has entered into all of it entered into the longing, entered into the depth. So our series over the next several weeks is called The Coming of God. And this year is an unusual one where uh, there's normally four Sundays in Advent, but the fourth Sunday of Advent this year is Christmas Eve itself. And so we'll be gathering together as a church family up at New Life North on Christmas Eve. But we've got the next three Sundays together. And so each week during this series on Advent, we're going to talk about the coming of God. And we're going to talk about it through the lens of three specific offices, if you will, or titles. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had three uh, uh, leadership offices, if you will, to kind of put it in a contemporary way, that functioned in Israel. There was the prophet, there was the priest, and there was the king. 
And each of these offices played an important role to, to, to lead the people of God. The prophets spoke the words of God. The priests would offer the sacrifices and reconcile the people back with God. And, and then the king would rule and, and bring wise and orderly um, uh, behavior into the nation. At least that's how it was supposed to work. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you realize, oh my goodness, all three of these offices have absolutely come to a stunning end. And you look at the prophets and you think, the prophets are all corrupt. The prophets have no more mercy. And you look at the priests and and you say, oh, the priests, they're tainted by their own greed and their own exploitation. And then you look at the kings, you know, the kings are worshiping false gods. And so by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, each of these offices have failed spectacularly. And we're left sort of wondering, should we give up on all of it? Should we give up on all of it? Should there never be prophets or priests? Or should we give up on all of it? Or, God, will you just come do the job yourself? God, would you just come and do the job yourself? And so when Jesus arrives, all of a sudden, these people around Jesus are beginning to realize, oh, this is God who has come to do the job for himself. And so today, I want us to examine, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the true prophet, the coming prophet, that we can see the coming of God by understanding Jesus as God coming to be the true prophet himself. What is a prophet? I grew up in in, uh, some wonderful Pentecostal settings, but every once in a while there would be a traveling prophet, a person who described themselves as the prophet the man of God, the woman of God, with a word from God, you know. And so there was always some excitement about this. I mean, it was kind of a buzz in our church whenever someone would be visiting as the prophet because we'd say, oh, I mean, let's get all the singing over with and let's get the sermon over with. We just can't wait for him to call out words, you know. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was less than great, right? And I've been in great settings. I was just in a wonderful environment just a few days ago with some amazing church leaders and we're giving words from the Lord to one another. There's a a tenderness and a a humility in in speaking to one another, words that we say, I think the Lord might be saying this. And I I realize whether you've experienced it in funny, awkward, excessive ways, or whether you've experienced it in beautiful and appropriate ways, we are all hungry for the Word of God. We're all hungry for a word from God. In fact, Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's something about human beings because the breath of God was breathed into us from the beginning. There's something about us as human beings that we long for the words of God to be breathed into us again. We need that. We long for it. And sometimes we look for it in unhealthy places. Sometimes we experience it in beautiful ways. But at the end of the day, we're longing for the words of God. And so when we say Jesus is the true prophet, Jesus, the coming prophet, we have to look back into the scriptures and to say, how do the scriptures describe the role of the prophet? How does the Old Testament understand the word of the prophet? Is it just someone who has fantastic dreams and visions? Is it just someone who can sort of conjure up the future? Who who is the prophet? Well, it might surprise you that Deuteronomy 34, and we heard this in our Old Testament reading, calls Moses the greatest prophet. Listen to this in verse 10. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses. You think Moses? I mean, he did a lot of cool things. He's a great guy, I'm sure. Impressive resume. But prophet? I mean, of all the things you say about Moses, I mean, good leader, pretty good teacher, strong deliverer, you know. Prophet. 
I mean, what, what, what qualifies you as a prophet, Moses? Well, Deuteronomy will tell us. And I want to outline three things to you as we read this. The first thing it says, No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The first thing the Scriptures want to tell us about the greatest prophet of the Old Testament is that he knew God face to face. Whom, and the Lord knew him face to face. So number one, a prophet speaks to God and for God. Now when you think about the Moses story, all of a sudden you see it. There's Moses running into the wilderness and he sees this bush on fire but not being consumed and he turns aside to look at it and all of a sudden the voice of God speaks from out of this flame and says, I have heard the cries of my people. I'm sending you. Moses is like, can you send someone else? God's like, no, you're it. And then Moses goes on, and we think about all the stuff leading Israel out of Egypt. But then, as they're journeying in the wilderness, there's this mountain, and there's thunder and lightning and smoke coming from the mountain. And there's this sense that God wants to speak to his people, but the people are like, well, this is way too scary. Moses, you go for us. And so Moses goes up to the mountain, and now you can imagine the Charleston Heston you know, images in your head. Moses going up the mountain, coming down with two iPad-looking things, you know, <laughs> that God had written on. These are the commandments. <laughs> Moses, the prophet who speaks to God and speaks for God. Now, the Gospels are interested in helping us see Jesus this way, particularly Matthew's Gospel. Think about the way Matthew introduces us to Jesus in ways that will right away make connections between Jesus and Moses. Remember when Moses was a baby, there was a Pharaoh who wanted to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys, and Moses gets rescued. And so when Matthew introduces us to the story of Jesus, what does he tell? A story about a king who's interested in killing baby boys. Right from the beginning of the narrative, we're like, Jesus, Moses, are we supposed to make a connection here? Then, then Matthew has this whole extended section of Jesus' teaching. He's the only gospel writer that has this. Matthew 5, it says, Jesus went up onto the hill, opened up his mouth, and began to teach them. Now, that's not just some long, drawn-out poet, drawn poetic way of saying Jesus taught, right? Like, why go up on a hill, opened up his mouth, and be... Why all those phrases? Because each of those phrases are key phrases that are meant to link you back to Moses on Mount Sinai. That Jesus goes up on the mountain, opens up his mouth as one with great authority. These are all idiomatic expressions of a person with great authority. And he began to teach them. And then, as if that weren't enough of a clue, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? How many times does Jesus say, Moses said, but I say. Moses said, but I said, now all of a sudden, this is our first clue. Wait a minute. Jesus is not just a prophet like Moses. Jesus might be greater than Moses. Something else is happening. See, a prophet speaks to God and for God, but Jesus spoke as God. Jesus spoke as God. And this was what was astonishing. Mark is the gospel writer that gives us kind of a just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach to the story. Mark gives us the, the raw sort of, whoa, puzzlement of the people. And right there in Mark 1, it says, Jesus, they went into Capernaum, and right away, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Now, this is not so much a dig on the scribes. 
This is a way of saying, this guy is teaching like he wrote this. Scribes, they copy. They pass on. Jesus isn't teaching like someone who's copying someone else's material. Jesus is teaching like this is his stuff. This is his material. Jesus spoke as God. Now we go back to Deuteronomy. Go back to Moses. Verse 11. What else makes Moses the greatest prophet? Well, it says he was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt. That's a key word to me. Signs and wonders against something? Do you mean God can do miracles that are actually against? Yes. They confront Signs and wonders against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. See, a prophet confronts the powers of evil. A prophet confronts the powers of evil. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, a prophet is one who speaks truth to power. Who speaks truth to power. Now, when you think about Moses, you can see it. You see it in the story. Here's Pharaoh. Who's Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the one who in all the legends of the, of the Egyptian religion, he's associated with being divine himself. And so in their pantheon of gods, Pharaoh is sort of chief among them. And Moses goes to this Pharaoh and says, by the way, the true God says, let his people go so they can worship him and not you or your homies. Something like that. <laughs> Talk about confronting the powers of evil. Moses, how, how, how could you do this? Because this is what prophets do. And, and when you follow the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament, you look at Elijah confronting Ahab. This is a, a king of Israel who's corrupted by evil. Elijah confronts him and Jezebel. And you follow the stories of the other prophets. All the times, prophets actually confront the powers of evil. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Pastor Jason's finishing up an eight-week Bible study on the book of Amos. I mean, it's going to be amazing when it's all done, right? But in, in Amos, the prophet of Israel starts addressing rulers of other nations. And you think, excuse me, who made you the, the, the person that can speak to other people's kings? And Amos is like, well, it's not so much me. It's just that I represent the king of the nations. And so I'm going to confront evil wherever I see it. God's concern for injustice and for evil is against the powers who corrupt. It says to me that if you're looking for prophets today, it may not be the person with all the ecstatic dreams and visions. It may be the person who knows how to speak the truth to power. It may be the person who is able to offer resistance. This is why Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. King would be a prophet more so than some of the ones we go chasing at prophecy conferences. Because a prophet confronts the powers of evil. How does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus has a number of showdowns. He has a showdown with the devil in the wilderness. Talk about confronting the powers of evil. But then Jesus has a showdown with Pilate at the end of John's gospel. And Jesus shows his resistance by being silent. Try that on social media. I am so not concerned about you that I'm going to be quiet. That's power. And then Pilate says, hey, why are you being so silent? Don't you know that I have the power to kill you or to release you? And then Jesus says, maybe the strongest 
truth to power, ever, words ever spoken. He says, you wouldn't have the power to do anything unless God gave it to you, my father. Pilate's like, I don't really know. I don't have a comeback for that. <laughs> okay. Jesus speaks the truth to power. He confronts the powers of evil. But Jesus does more than confront the powers of evil. Jesus conquered the powers of evil. Jesus conquered. He doesn't just confront it, speak the truth to it, challenge it. Jesus himself knows that in his death on the cross, he would finally defeat once and for all the powers of evil. Listen to what Colossians says. Colossians says in verse 14 of chapter 2, he erased the certificate of debt with all its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus doesn't just confront the powers. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, our heart, it's how the powers themselves become conquered and defeated. You look around in the world today and you say, well, how is it that that's happening and how is it that that's happening and how is it that, how is it that a great humanitarian crisis, we're on the verge of this in Yemen because of starvation and disease and all, how is it, what is God going to do about all of this stuff? God has disarmed all the rulers and authorities. You say, well, I don't see it. Right, I know, I know. And yet we have to believe in this in-between phase that we're living in, the coming and the return. Jesus, the great prophet, was not indifferent about injustice. He's not spiritualizing the kingdom and saying, well, let's just talk about forgiveness and souls and an ethereal paradise. Let's not worry about evil and injustice and the abuse of power. He's not saying that. He's saying it's coming. And because of the death and resurrection of Christ, all the powers have been and will be dealt with fully. That's how we know this. And then thirdly, verse 12 in Deuteronomy 34, it says that Moses, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in all the sight of Israel. I want you to think, pay particular attention to that phrase, in all the sight of Israel. Because I think a prophet reveals God. A prophet has a way of pulling the shade back, removing the scales, allowing people's eyes to be opened, and all of a sudden they say, oh, that is what God is like. A prophet has a way of reminding a wayward people, hey, 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 that's not what God is like. This is what God is like. Come back, come back, come back. Two Hebrew words for prophet used in the Old Testament. There's a little bit of debate about exactly what they mean, but, but one of them has this sense that this is a person who sees. It's the seer. The prophet is a seer. He sees differently. And then there's also in a very simple sense that the prophet is the one who says, who speaks. He's, he speaks the oracles of God. He's a sayer. And so I wonder if you took kind of the two together, you might say that a prophet reveals God because he sees a different world and says a different word. He sees a different world and says a different word. And so when everybody else just sees this, the prophet says, I see something else coming. I mean, think about Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of hope. Think about some of the things Isaiah said 
especially the, the, the last third of this letter where he starts talking about a new heavens and a new earth and he starts talking about even earlier in the letter where on the mountain of the Lord all the nations will come and the veil of death will be removed and you're thinking Isaiah you're crazy like all I see around us is devastation and doom and judgment and death what do you mean death will be swallowed up what do you mean that there'll be a feast for all nations all I'm seeing is people leaving Jerusalem you're saying people are going to come streaming into the city of God how is this possible and Isaiah says I've seen a different world the prophet sees a different world and therefore can say a different word and the result is God is revealed people see God You remember this story in the Old Testament where there's all these chariots and the invading armies and the prophet says, no, greater is the one who's for us than the one who's against us. He's like, what are you talking about? He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. He can't see it. But then as a result, well, he sees it. He says, this this isn't how it's going to end. Jesus is like this prophet that reveals God because every act, every Miracle was a way of pointing to God. Did you know that Jesus didn't use miracles as like an elaborate party trick? You know, he did, this is not how Jesus used miracles where let's just razzle-dazzle, warm up the crowd with a, with a little healing here and another healing there. Let's just war, warm up the, the room, get everybody all happy, and then I'll come in with the altar call where people can pray the sinner's prayer and then go home. <laughs> Whoops. That's how we do it, right? Razzle-dazzle, give him the real important call, Make them sign the card and then go. That's not how the miracles work in the Gospels. What are the miracles there for? John's Gospel gives us the biggest clue. He he calls them signs. Now, some of you, you've been around church so long, you just, you use miracles, signs and wonders. You just say it. It's all just one big, you know, mess. (laughs) You've forgotten how signs actually work. How do signs work? Well, they point to something. Signs tell you when you're close to arriving at the destination. If you got, start heading north on I-25, there'll be signs that tell you where Castle Rock is. There'll be signs that tell you where Denver is. And every time you see the sign, you realize we're getting closer. And that's what the miracles do. The miracles say you've been asking Yahweh to come and be king himself. You've been asking Yahweh to take the broken things and put them back together again. Well, even as I make the lame to rise again, I want you to know it's coming. I want you to know it's coming. And even as I make the blind to see, I want you to know it's coming. The rule of God that restores and makes all things new is coming. The arrival of the kingdom, it's coming. It's here. And so every sign that Jesus performed was a way of pointing to the arriving kingdom. Think about John the Baptist arrested, awaiting his execution, losing heart. And he says to his disciples, I think I know the answer to this because I I grew up with this kid. He's my cousin, kind of, sort of. (laughs) But uh, I just, could you go find Jesus and just ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? I mean, John the Baptist, who at one point baptized Jesus and said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John the Baptist, who is so sure of who Jesus is, Life had beat the snot out of him. And now he got to this place where he's lost all hope and he's ready to despair. And he says, would you just ask Jesus, like, are you, are you it? Or should we look for another? And Jesus says, you tell John, the lame walk, 
a blind sea. Sinners are forgiven. Prisoners go free. You tell John. Why? Because that's all the signs John needed. He can connect the dots. So the prophet reveals God. And Jesus, in every word of forgiveness, in every act of healing, reveals God. But there's more than this. Jesus doesn't just reveal God. Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Jesus is performing the signs of the kingdom because he's the king of the kingdom. He's not just another prophet announcing what the reign of God will look like. He himself is the king. Jesus is the fullness of God. Listen to this from Colossians 1. This is one of the early hymns of the early church. Talking about Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Amen. Now catch this. Right after they say that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwelling in Jesus, what then is revealed about God? And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, the very thing that Jesus reveals about God is that God is a God of reconciliation. God is a God who can take broken things in our lives and somehow redeem them. God is a God who can take these misfit pieces and say, I'm going to put them together in a way that you would have never dreamed possible. Jesus is the fullness of God. And so every act of healing the leper or healing the lame or healing the blind is an act that reveals that God is the kind of God that restores and reconciles and redeems. That's what Jesus reveals. So to put it on the screen... All three things that we've said Jesus is, he spoke as God, he conquered the powers of evil, and he is himself the fullness of God. And we sit here this morning and we think, well, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our homes, for our marriages, for the way that we raise our kids, for the way that we go to work tomorrow, for the way that we respond to housemates and roommates and colleagues and bad bosses and difficult pressures. What does this mean for all that? Do you ever wonder what God has said to you, what God has to say to you? Are you here this morning saying, I, I just would like to know, what would God say to me? What would God say to me right now? You want to know what God has to say to you? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If you're here struggling in the depths, wrestling with your guilt, look at Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and walk. If you're here wondering, what would Jesus say to me right now in the midst of this chronic pain and this suffering and this difficulty. 
And the leper says, are you willing? And Jesus says, I am willing. To know that Jesus' desire for us is not the kind of will that sees suffering as an end in itself or a good in itself, but that says in the end, whether in this life or in the resurrection, there will be healing. What does Jesus say if you find yourself the victim of someone else's sin, find yourself caught up in it, implicated in it? Look at Jesus speaking to the woman. The woman at the well who was herself a victim of men who used her up and cast her up aside and said, I've got the water you're really thirsty for. Look at the Jesus who says to the woman who's trying to be trotted out as an example, caught in the act of adultery, but very likely against her own will because of the way the world worked back then. Jesus looks her in the eye and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you wonder what God has to say to you, look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God will do about evil in the world? Is God quiet about the evil in the world and injustice and exploitation? Do you want to know what God will do about evil in the world? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the God who joins us in our suffering, who places himself not in the position of the powerful, but in the seat of the broken and the exploited and the oppressed, and says, I will also die the death. Enter into it, and in doing so, defeat it. Do you want to know what God will do about evil in the world? Look at Jesus. What has been accomplished at Calvary will come to pass. Do you want to know what God is like? Some of you grew up in churches or with parents or homes it didn't really matter what they said to you about God. All you remember is the angry faces of a, of a scowling parent. And so without even realizing it, you just transpose that over to God. And so every time you think of God, you think of Him like that. An angry father. A mother that's impossible to please. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. John's gospel says in him, he's the one who's full of grace and truth. Do you want to know what it's like for justice and mercy to meet? Do you want to know what it's like for a person to be full of grace and full of truth? Do you know what it's like? You want to know what it's like for God to turn his face towards you? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. God cannot be someone other than the one who sent Jesus. And Jesus the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you want to know what God has to say to you? 
Do you want to know what God will do about all that's wrong in the world? Do you want to know what God himself is like? Look at Jesus. And so this morning as we come to the table, the table is a place where eyes get opened. You remember Luke's story of the disciples sitting around and all of a sudden Jesus takes bread and blesses it and their eyes are open and they see the table is a place where we see again. My prayer for you this morning is that you would come to see Jesus again. So would you bow your heads? I know that for many of you, You're in a place where you need a word from the Lord. And I pray that 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 comes in all kinds of ways as you pray, as through your community. All all of those things are great. But there is no word from God that will be greater than the word of God. There is no word from God that will be greater than the word of God, Jesus himself. And so in the place of your desperation. In the place of your crying out to know, would you look again at Jesus? Jesus who heals. Jesus who forgives. Jesus who restores. Jesus who suffered. Jesus who died. Jesus who was buried. Jesus who was raised. Jesus who will come again in glory. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face.